If you'd like, if you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to open up to Acts chapter 13. Father, help us now as we open your word, as we have sung praises and we have sung and prayed um, prayers of repentance and have received the gift of your sacrifice and declared the glory of that. Now, Lord, I pray that we would see beautiful things in your word, that we would come to this knowing that this is your words. These are your words to us, and they are true, and they are trustworthy. Lord, as we read and hear and preach and understand, let it all be done and dwelled by the Holy Spirit, being able to discern what is true and good and beautiful, that we would be able to discern conviction in our own hearts and that we would not respond in defensiveness or as scoffers, but that we would repent and that we would receive all that you have for us. Let us not settle for anything less than the incredible joy and hope and peace and life that is offered in you. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are new here, my name is Jay, and I'm, I'm one of the pastors, and we've been working through um, the book of Acts together. And we are in Acts chapter 13 um, this morning. And really, I'm going to be focusing on the second half of Acts chapter 13. The, the beginning of it is it's actually a continuation of, of chapter 11. And what we see in the first um, four, four verses, like there, there's this story of Paul and, and Barnabas, or Saul and Barnabas, and then he, this is when he starts, um, they start referring to him as Paul as the gospel moves and is now being proclaimed to the Gentiles. But the story kind of pauses, and then last week we talked about in, in chapter 12, where we see Peter miraculously delivered, and now it kind of, Luke picks back up with, uh, with Paul and Barnabas. And what we see in in verse 1, it says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Just a quick pause there that remember as we're talking about the church in Acts, it is so dynamic how they are constantly worshiping God, praising God, begging God for miracles, seeing people come to faith all the time. And it is their norm. It is their culture. Um, it is normative for them at this point to believe that God is raising people up to send them out. And it's just a, you know, Robbie talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but, but we want to be a church that sees that as normative. That we that we'd be a church that we would just say, look, we're, we know every week we are drawing you together to worship together so that then we can go as we are sent out to our neighborhoods and our jobs. And for some of you in this room, that will also mean being sent to, um, to a different land. And we just, I just want to get to a place where that's just normative all the time. We have a history of raising up and sending people out and I just, I just want more. 
and more and just see God working in that. And that's where they are. So imagine how much they loved having Saul and Barnabas with them. Like Barnabas, son of encouragement. So he's the great encourager. And Saul, who preaches with power and all these incredible things happening um, through his ministry as he begins. And God says, raise them up. I'm sending them out. And the church says, okay, let's do it. And they sent them off. Now, what's interesting about this is they don't exactly get sent to um, the scariest of places. They are sent to Cyprus. Cyprus is an island. It would be a lot like I had a friend um, in, in Colorado who was, um, felt like he was sent as a missionary. And so he was being called. And it's so great. Like people are just like, oh, you're, you're called to go. Like, oh, what a sacrifice. How wonderful. Where are you called to go? And he said, Hawaii. Like, oh, well, not as much of a sacrifice then, is it? Okay. Right? Like there's that feeling of it. It's like you're called to go to this place. It's this beautiful place that everybody like, I love to go there. And that's kind of what Cyprus is like. And so they're sent to this. It's this beautiful island of basically perfect um, weather and no ticks. And so it's amazing. <laughs> it's like heaven. And they, so they get there and they walk the island sharing the gospel. And it seems like nothing really Crazy happens. They just, they share the gospel until we get to the scene of this conflict in Paphos. And look, I, I don't, um, I don't have time to really go into this, but it is this incredible story where, where Paul comes into direct conflict with a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. And when he um, calls this guy out. This guy is like leading people astray. He's claiming to know. He's claiming to be a descendant of Jesus. He's claiming to have known him and he's preaching a completely false gospel. And he's leading people astray. And Paul looks at him and says, Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And he strikes him blind, which is a little ironic given that Paul was struck blind by Jesus. Maybe not ironic, maybe fitting. And so Paul declares this, you have this really powerful display. And we sometimes can look at something like that and, and think like, okay, well, so that's why we got to confront these things aggressively. And I will say yes at times. But if you notice Paul and Jesus, the, time, the only times that they do something like that, it's always aimed at false teachers. It's always aimed at the people who claim to know God but lead people astray. There are grave warnings against those who act like they know God and then serve as a stumbling block. Grave, grave warnings. And by the way, this is why. If you ever hear something in a sermon that pushes against you in a, in a way that you're not really comfortable with or maybe you're frustrated by or maybe you're wondering, and just know that this is why I'm not afraid of you. And I say that with all the love of my heart. I'm not afraid of displeasing you. The fear that comes over me, the fear that I feel, the thing that convicts me and makes me study and pray over and, and work hard on sermons and make sure that what I'm preaching here is, is true is because of things like this, that God reserves his gravest warnings for those who would claim to know him and lead people away from him. That is a serious warning. And it's not just for me, it's for all of us. I was talking to a friend yesterday who 
Um, really great insight. Um, and he said, you know, it's one thing to question the faith or to question what's going on in the church and to, to be kind of struggling with all of that. It's another, it seems like it's another thing to then take that and pass all of that confusion to other people. I was like, yeah, that's it's really insightful and true. And so I think all of us need to be mindful of that. In this world right now where never have we seen, at least in our lifetimes, have not seen this kind of divide in what we consider to be the evangelical church, that it can be very disorienting. And I just want to say, if you hold fast to Christ and abide in him, listen to the Holy Spirit, read his word in the power of the Holy Spirit, wrestle with things together, that he will hold you fast. But be mindful and careful of taking things that you kind of run off on a tangent for and and passing that around to others. That's a dangerous thing to do. So Paul fights this battle. I wish I had more time to go into that. I would be happy to some other time. Maybe Robbie will have a space in the outline later and we can come back to that. But Paul fights this battle, and, and what is Paul's reward for fighting this incredible battle and, and seeing people come to faith in Christ and defeating a false prophet? Well, he has to sail away from Cyprus to the less desirable Pamphylia, and then eventually to Galatia. So he has to leave Hawaii. That's one of his rewards. The other reward is he has to skip and even go on to Galatia, possibly because of an illness, we learn that in, in Galatians 4.13 because what this, you know, we talk about these epistles are parallel to what's going on with Acts. Um, Paul says, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. So most scholars believe that what happened to Paul in Pamphylia was that he got malaria. And so getting malaria, he's got to kind of move on. Now that's, that's conjecture. It's not in scripture, but it's just kind of piecing together. Well, he says this to the, to the church in Galatia, um, that, that it was because of an illness that he even first came to them. And this is when he first came to them. And so it makes sense. But also what happened is he's deserted at this point by John Mark. So we have Paul and Barnabas and John Mark goes with them to minister in Cyprus. And when all of this happens around him, John Mark returns to Jerusalem and abandons them. So Paul's reward for being faithful to the gospel is to have to leave a beautiful land, probably struck with malaria or some kind of illness, and deserted by a close friend. So good warning for us in that, that do not think that as you go and share the gospel that you will not face these kinds of trials and challenges. I've seen a lot of people over the years get excited about sharing the gospel and start really seeing their lives transform. Then they go and they go on mission and they think that, oh, okay, finally I found God's purpose for me to go on mission, to go share the gospel with people and then everything in my life is going to get better. It does not. And we'll talk about how your joy will increase, but your external circumstances may very well get harder. And that's what's happened for Paul. And so they finally get to Galatia, to Antioch there, to that Antioch, and they go into a synagogue and sit down. And who knows what he's thinking at this point. Just want to hear the word of the Lord, maybe. But then they ask him to speak. 
And I don't know if he was excited to get back at it, if he was determined to get back at it, or if he was tired and just was hoping for a Sabbath of actual rest where he wouldn't need to do this. We don't know. But what comes out as a response in Antioch of Pisidia is Paul's, the first recorded sermon of Paul's. And this is the message. He stands up in verse 16. Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. Let's pause there. So what, what Paul is doing at this point, remember he's preaching in a synagogue to mostly Jews or to people who had converted to Judaism. So they, they know these stories. And what Paul starts off with when he preaches his first sermon is God's faithfulness. He wants to remind them of of people. Remember how God has been faithful. Remember what he has done. Remember how he delivered our people. He, He promised Abraham that he would make his descendants great. And so he built this nation. And then when they were in slavery, he led them out of Egypt. He delivered them. Remember how God was faithful to deliver us out of bondage. And all the people would be listening to that and remembering and thinking of all the stories around them, thinking, oh, that, is, that was so great. Like, God is so good and so faithful. And what Paul is kind of building to is this, is this kind of idea where he's saying, hey, remember how faithful God is. Remember all these great things he has done. I'm about to tell you about even more faithfulness from God and even greater things that he has done. And so he says, remember how he delivered you. And remember that through the prophets, he, he promised that deliverance would happen again in an even greater way, and the people had been waiting. And that would all come into their minds of like, yes, and we're waiting for that deliverance again. And so he says, remember how he fulfilled the promise of bringing people into the promised land. The land that he had promised for them, he now delivered them into. Remember when that happens and they go into the land. And it's given over to them. And, and now the people are hearing that and remembering, yes, wasn't that amazing? And now they are also waiting for him to do it again. As they were waiting, longing for this kind of land to be delivered back to them. And he says, remember how God provided even a great king like David. A man after God's own heart. Remember how he was able to to preserve all of this, this inheritance that had been given to you and and this deliverance that had been given to you. Remember how great he was. And the people would be thinking like, yes, King David was great. And now they were waiting for another great king. They were waiting for the one that had been prophesied about. 
And that's when Paul says, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. So he's connecting it to these promise, the promises. As he promised, he has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. The God who did these great works that Paul is summarizing for them has done something even greater. The Messiah has come. The great king, the great deliverer, and the coming of the kingdom. But the people missed it. That's what he points out in verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God. So this is who he's addressing in the synagogue. To us has been sent the message of this salvation. Everything that God has promised, everything that he said would come to pass, he has given it to us now. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning them. By condemning him. Think about, listen to what he's saying there. He's saying, look, this message, we've been waiting. Like, I just traced this through. We've been waiting for a greater promised land, a greater inheritance, a greater deliverance, a greater king. And now he has come. And the people who said they were waiting the most for him missed him. How is that possible? And not only did they miss him, he said they, they listened to the prophets every Sabbath and then fulfilled them by condemning him. They became the ones that they read about. They didn't believe what God had promised and they fulfilled the scripture by condemning Jesus. Like how is that possible that the people who knew the scriptures the most could miss Jesus, the one that they were all waiting for? And I think the warning that we just have to keep putting out there so that we would be mindful of it, that we would hear it, that we would not become hardened to it, is this constant warning that arrogance about knowing God actually makes you blind to him. Overconfidence and zealousness and trusting in our own ability to reason and think and, and to do all these things to just believe who God is and to find our righteousness in ourselves is actually the most dangerous place to be. Searching the word, as Jesus warned them, he searched the scriptures because he think in them you will find eternal life, but it's them that testify about me. If you read the scriptures and you miss Jesus or you look at Jesus as just like the supporting character, you're missing the point. If you try to read the scriptures without being indwelled by the Holy Spirit to see with new eyes and to think with a renewed mind and to love with a new heart, then you miss the point and you actually become hardened to the point that you would actually reject Jesus. And as Paul is preaching this, he knows he's preaching to people who also had rejected. And he's saying, look, this is, this is what's happened. Like, listen, let's have eyes to see. And he declares, we have great news. All of those greater things that God has promised have been fulfilled in Jesus. 
with the fulfillment of the prophecy about the Messiah, all the greater things that we've been waiting for are now here and we proclaim them to you. And he goes on to talk about, though they found him not guilty, they, they're calling, he's calling back to prophecies in Isaiah. Like in verse 28, it says, And though they found him, in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Paul is building the case that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the greater king. He's not just a king after God's own heart, like David. He is God's only begotten son, just like he said. He's even greater than David, with a greater deliverance and a greater inheritance. In verse 36, it says, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So he's saying, look, he's a, he's a greater king than David. And he offers a greater deliverance than even that out of Egypt. Because he says he delivers you from your sin. Like Moses just led you out of slavery to human bondage, but Jesus sets you free from sin, something even the law could not do. Because even if they thought, you know, Rome isn't our big problem, sin is, they would have still thought, but I have to, I have to achieve that through the law. And, 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 and Paul is saying, no, Jesus sets you free. The law can't set you free. Overthrowing the Roman government cannot set you free. Only Jesus can set you free using Jesus' own words, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We sang these, song, these, we sang these words today. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Church, this is why we make communion the center. Because me just teaching you biblical principles and ways to live your life will not set you free. Only Jesus will set you free. And I will be a broken record to the day of my death. Because that is the only hope that we have and the only message that I know. And Paul is declaring that. And this deliverer is here. It's, it's so shocking when, when Jesus forgives sins. That's why. Because no one has ever spoke like that. No one has an authority to do that. There's only one who can do that, and he has come. And so Paul is preaching a greater deliverance to a greater inheritance by a greater king. Now, don't miss this, and this is where I'm going to get to the application. Because if at this point you're like, okay, great, I get it. I want to just point out something that I think is so critical and the, the linchpin that then makes this so relevant to today. Paul is preaching that the people thought they needed to be delivered by, from something. 
But actually what they needed to be delivered from was a much greater thing. Right? They thought they were, they were looking and waiting for an inheritance that they saw as great in the promised land. But what Jesus was offering was actually a far greater inheritance that they couldn't even imagine. And so to bring that about, they were waiting for a great king like David. But what they really needed was someone far greater. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, through whom all things were created. And Paul comes with a warning because they're going to miss it again. And he, doesn't, he says in verse 40, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. So even as he shares all of this, he says, look, he was rejected, they missed it, and now I'm preaching it to you. Don't miss it. Don't be a scoffer. Don't mock it. Don't be the one that fulfills scripture by condemning him. You see it all around you. Don't be the one about whom it says you will not believe even if one tells it to you. So why? Why is there this warning? Why do they continue to scoff? Because what we're going to see in this is that they do continue to scoff. Some receive life but others scoff and mock. And we talk about this all the time. And here's why. It's related to that that idea of that inheritance and deliverance and our deliverer. They scoff because of this. We all have a great desire. We all have our own version of a promised land. We all have the thing that we say, if we just had this, everything would be fine. Everything would be great. Sometimes it's nationwide, sometimes it's just personal in my own life, but we all have this thing that pulls on us that we say, yeah, I know Jesus, but if this, this is the promised land. And there's some obstacle keeping us from that promised land. Something keeping us from that. And we know that we need something to deliver us from that, to bring that promised land about by defeating that enemy that is keeping us from it. And so for them, in, in, in this time when Paul is speaking to them, for many of them, they would have seen the promised land being the establishment of the kingdom of Israel. And what we have to do, why don't we have that? Because Rome is overtaking us. And they might even say also because of the sin of non-believers. And so they had two enemies in that. If to, to achieve what they wanted, the promised land, the kingdom of Israel, to get that, they had to defeat two key enemies. One was Rome, pretty big one. Also was the sin of everyone else. Not their own. The problem, the reason why they didn't have the promised land was because they had this invading nation and because other people weren't being faithful to God. And that's what the the Jewish religious authorities built their whole identity around, built their whole structure around, and it's why they're so angry about Paul because he's talking about something else. And they're saying, no, the problem, the reason why we don't have this thing that we need to have is because you're sinning. And if that's the case, then I have to solve that. And so if, if Rome was the biggest problem, or if, if a lack of holiness was the biggest problem, then they didn't need 
someone greater than David. They didn't need anything that big. They just needed somebody to come in and either some of them believed we need somebody to overthrow the Roman government and other people need, no, we need someone to come in and cleanse the, ta- the temple and, and to back up the religious authority and make sure that people obey. And so that's what they were looking for. And so when Jesus comes in and says, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's, he chased away one part of the crowd. And when he calls the religious authorities and leaders, when he, when he calls them out and calls them sons of Satan and other fun terms, he chases them away. And they miss him because they're like, well, you're not doing either. You're not offering deliverance from Rome or from all the sin of all those sinners out there. They couldn't imagine something greater than the promised land. They couldn't imagine a bigger problem than the people out there. And so they didn't need a greater king than David. So they scoff because deliverance from sin is nonsense because I don't have any. The problem is they're not holy like us. The problem isn't our sin, it's theirs. And so they scoff at this idea that they need to be delivered from sin. An inheritance in heaven is a fairy tale. Here and now, this temporary place is the only thing that is real or exists. And so therefore, a crucified king that you are proclaiming is powerless to do anything about our very real problems. Are you tracking with me? What you believe is your promised land, whatever you are putting your hope in, will be met with obstacles And whoever you believe will deliver you from that, whatever the problem is, that will be your king. If you believe, like they did, that our greatest problems are here and now, our greatest problems are out there in this temporary space, then you'll put your hope in some king that will deliver you from those, but will leave you dead in your sins. And you'll scoff at this crucified king. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Do you believe or do you scoff? If you think about it at a personal level, maybe for you at just a personal level, the the promised land is, is the good life, my best life. And if God is real, then then my business will succeed, my kids will prosper. And so deliverance, what I need to be delivered from in that pursuit of of happiness, that pursuit of of the good life, is I need to be delivered from all of my bad circumstances, from my my illnesses, from from my circumstances, from from my job, from people around me. And if that's the case, then we become our own kings because we believe we are the ones who can best figure out how to accomplish that. And many of us treat Christianity like that. That Jesus is the spiritual advisor as I pursue my promised land. 
And I will believe in God as long as he helps me achieve my promised land. But my promised land has things to do with very tangible things. And I don't see how a crucified king is going to help me with this. And what we end up doing with Jesus is we basically treat him like the Queen of England. Right? I mean, we look at England and we're like, that's a queen? Because you have pomp and circumstance, and they do, these, they do these formal ceremonies and kind of this formal respect, and this formal kind of awe and, and all that. But when it comes to real stuff, when it comes to real issues, what does the queen do about that? Nothing. Even the prime minister will be like, okay, queen, what would you like to say? Okay, but we're really going to deal with this. That's how so many of us in the church treat Jesus. I will give him all the pomp and circumstance. I'll come forward. I'll sing songs. I'll, I'll raise hands. I'll read the Bible. I'll, I, will, I will put out, like, I will stand for him in these, in these certain ways. But when it comes to the real stuff, my actual life, my pursuit of my happiness, my relationships, how I'm going to, to deal with people who scoff at me or persecute me, how I'm going to deal with people who disagree with me, how I deal with people who I think are ruining my country, well, then, then I'm on my own. I'm going to look for somebody to help me with that because Jesus, I don't think a crucified king with all of his like love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you and if they ask for your cloak, give them your tunic as well and all that stuff. Like that's not going to help me in the here and now. We can't imagine that our need for deliverance is much greater, that the inheritance is being offered is much better. So we can't imagine why we would need a king who is much greater. Because the real promised land is not our best life now. It is reconciliation to God. It is to be known and to be loved and to abide in Jesus, to find the hope, peace, joy, and rest that is everlasting in Christ, to be content in all circumstances. That's the promised land here. And just imagine, we talk about this a lot, just imagine if you could be content for some of you, that is such a fleeting thing, and that's my testimony. Contentment is so fleeting. I just, just want to be content. Not settle. I just want to be content. To have joy. To have peace. To have hope. That's the promised land. And the greatest threat to that is in here. The greatest threat to your own joy and contentment is your own sin. And if you don't see that, then you will always pursue some other solution and look for another king. And at most, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a spiritual add-on to kind of help in part of the battle. But what Christ offers is forgiveness, to be made new, to be set free, and that is what we need more than anything more than to be delivered from our circumstances, more than to be delivered from, from people around us, but to be delivered from our own sin. This is so clear, I think, in our personal lives, and then we see it in society, and I don't have time to dig into that deeply, but I will just say this. This projects out and it's not just about us in here. It also then flows out into the world around us. Like not only do we want our own personal lives of happiness, but many of us right now in, in this country, with it being so divided, want our country to be fixed. And the way we see to do that 
could not be more different than some other people. Whatever you think that means for our country to be fixed, to be freed from the tyranny and the foolishness of people on the other side. But there is a greater deliverance that we proclaim. And a greater inheritance than just getting our country back or seeing it progress into some kind of utopia. Either way, we see that as a promised land. We see that as a hope. But we proclaim a greater kingdom, one that is already here, working in every country in the world, and one that is yet to come that will be established forever. See, our problem is if we, what we think is utopia is here and now, if we don't confront that in our hearts, then we will follow a false king, a lesser king whether it's in our own hearts or some political party or some business guru or some self-help guru or some false teacher, whatever it is, we will follow the one who offers the solution to what we think is the problem, to what we want to achieve. But if we would believe that there is one who has come, who has offered a greater inheritance, one that is unfading, one that makes the longest reign of any world power look like an instant. And if we believe that the obstacle to having that, both here and now and then for all eternity, is actually in here and not out there, then we will realize how great our need is for a great Savior. Because what we proclaim is not a great earthly leader, but the only begotten Son whose kingdom is all of creation in heaven and on earth, the Alpha and the Omega and the beginning and the end. There is a deliverance that lasts forever, an inheritance that never fades, and a king who lives. So let's pursue him. Let's not miss it. Let's not miss it together and get distracted. And if you need a frame of reference, I get distracted all the time. Just watch me coach 12-year-olds and ask me what the promised land is. There are days where I'm like, the promised land is that I won't watch another kid take a ball right down the middle for strike three. That's all I want. And you might think like that's silly and petty. Well, so is all of our stuff. But our God is kind and merciful and he understands that. But he talks about something greater and the Gentiles want to hear more and they beg him for more. And so he comes back and preaches and then people reject it again and fight and sowed seeds of discontent. Because it's going to happen. Because there will always be people who will hear this and say that is the power of Christ to save. And there are always people who will hear that and say that is folly. That is foolishness. But this is the message we preach. Christ crucified, sins forgiven, new hearts, new eyes, new lives. And you are a testimony to that. So if our greatest threats are out there and our greatest hope is here and now, then no wonder we look to other saviors, to other deliverers, to other kings. But if you have seen the darkness in your own heart and you long 
to be content in all circumstances, to attain a joy that is inexpressible, that it, to attain a peace that is inexplainable, and an inheritance that is unfading. If you hear that and it stirs in you, then the crucified Christ is the greatest news of all. Let's pray. Father, help us to believe. God, forgive us. Forgive us for how we pursue other promised lands, other treasures. Because when we see those as the promised land, then God, we are going to see the obstacles as being things out there and not our own sin. And then we will look to other kings and rulers and philosophies to help us attain the promised land that we want, that we have designed. But God, you offer something so much greater. There's things that we can't even imagine, that no eye has seen, or ears heard, or his mind has conceived. Like we just, we can't even fathom what you are preparing for those who love you. And yet we get a glimpse here, Lord. Give us glimpses of it, and we've experienced it, we've tasted and seen that you are good. Let us pursue more of that. Let us find that and see that as our promised land, to abide in you, to be at peace in you, to have joy in you, to be content in you. Please bring that to bear in our lives. And that when that is our desire, when that is our promised land, then we will realize that there is nowhere else we can turn. There is no one else who has the words of eternal life. There is no one else who has the offer of the forgiveness of sins. There is no one else by which man must be saved. There is no one else who is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no one else who can change and transform and renew but Jesus. Let us feel that deep into our souls and to pursue the inheritance that you have offered to us and to love you with our whole mind, body, and soul. Amen.